friends, it's wonderful to be with you. Pesach is getting close, and I know how hard it is to take off time to learn a little. Pesach really is hard work. In fact, once, many years ago, when I was a congregational rabbi, I reminded people of the t-shirt that was worn in the 1960s by the first generation of women who went en masse to college. And they got married, and then had children, and that had great burdens. And somebody made a great deal of money selling a t-shirt that read, for this, we went to college. I said, somebody should make one specially for Pesach cleaning that says, for this, we left Egypt. (laughs) As divine providence would have it, that week was the only week in my entire rabbinical career in which an apron maker was sitting in the shul. So we actually owned that apron. But friends, may I just begin by reminding us that this coming Shabbat is called Shabbat HaGadol and the Rishonim and the Achronim are unsure as to why this particular name. And they have many suggestions, but one is deeply appropriate. There were two times a year before Yom Kippur and before Pesach, when the Gadol Ha'ir, the great man, the great Rav of the city, would expound Torah for the wider community. And that is why this particular Shabbat was called Shabbat HaGadol, the Shabbat of the Gadol Ha'ir. Elaine and I have come to the conclusion today of a week of activities dedicated to the recognition of Gadol Ha'ir Hazer, the great Torah leader of this city, Rabbi Dr. Norman Lamb. And this has been, for us, and I hope for you, Shabbat HaGadol, a week of paying tribute to his greatness. Rabbi Shachter asked a very simple question, and provoked a simple question. If HaKadosh Baruch Hu brought out the Jewish people alone, Ani velo malach, Ani velo saraf, Ani velo shaliach, why did he even need Moshe Rabbeinu in the first place? Let him speak directly to the Israelites in Egypt as he spoke directly to them on Mount Sinai. Why even need a human intermediary at all? Why not literally do it on Nivolo And the answer, of course, is very clear. I'm absolutely fascinated by the way everyone walks around the streets of New York, apparently talking to themselves. <laughs> and I see all of you, everyone here has a, has a, mobile, telephone, a Blackberry, if vice versa, you know, freedom is not having a Blackberry. 
And the short answer is that out there in the ether are signals. And down here are us who want to pick up those signals, but without a modem, without a Bluetooth connection. There can be us and the signals, but we never, ever meet. The universe is full of Vayikra, of God's call to us. And here we are, ready to receive that call. But without the Bluetooth connection between us and those signals, there is no transformation of the human condition. There is no Yitziat Mitzrayim. For a generation, for decades, Rabbi Lam has been, as was Moshe Rabbeinu in his generation, the Bluetooth connection between the call of God for this hour and we who stand ready for it. He was, like Moshe, the person who lifted the people so that they could hear the voice of God and who took the voice of God and made it articulate so it could be heard by the people. So please join me in this, the last of this Shabbat Agadol, this week of events. Join me in expressing our thanks and our gratitude to the Gadol, Rabbi Dr. Norman Friends, I uh, begin with the passage with which uh, Rabbi Dr. Shachter ended. The Maiseb Rabbi Elezeb Rabbi Yoshua, etc. in Bnei Brak. Let's just remind ourselves, it's not on the Makorot, you see. I didn't want to slap all these pages, so I got condensed the Makorot to only the key ones. But remind ourselves of what the Haggadah is saying. And it's very interesting because we tend to read the Haggadah as if it was Haggadah, as if it were mere narration. That the, much of the Haggadah is also Halakha. It is shaped by and determined by the parameters of Jewish law. So let us just remind ourselves of what is happening. The four questions have been asked by the child and then we give our initial answer. And then we say, If God hadn't taken us out, we would still be there. And then the Haggadah says, "Vafilu kulanu chachamim, kulanu levonim, kulanu mzikenim, kulanu yodim esatara." Mitzvah leinu lesabim mitzrayas mitzrayim. If we were all wise, it would still be a mitzvah to talk about the going out of Egypt. V'chol amarbel lesabim b'tiyas mitzrayim harezem shubach. And the more we do so, the greater we are to be praised. And then comes the word maaseh. It happened that Rabbi Eliezer, Rabbi Yeshua, Rabbi Eliezer ben Azariah, Rabbi Akiva, and Rabbi Tarfan, Shahayu Mesubim b'Bnei Brak, they were sitting in Bnei Brak, Vayu Mesaprim b'Tzis Mitzrayim, Kol Osa Alayla, 
and they were talking about going out of Egypt all that night. Until the disciple came and told them, Rabosai, it is time for the morning Kriyashma. And what I want to do this morning is simply to ask what they were talking about. And we will discover a quite extraordinary story. A story that, as I say, in its own quiet way, changed Jewish history. And the reason I do so is because a great Anglo-Jewish historian, the late Cecil Roth, actually speculated that what these five sages were talking about was the Bar Kokhba Rebellion, which had not yet happened. We know that in 66 of the first century of the Common Era, there was the Great Revolt against Rome, it ended disastrously with the destruction of the Second Temple in the year 70 and the death of the final outpost of resistance at Masada in 73. We also know that the next generation did not give up hope of a further rebellion that would be like the Maccabees, that would restore Jewish sovereignty and allow the Temple to be rebuilt and one of the great architects of that dream was Rabbi Akiva. And Rabbi Akiva famously thought that Bar Kokhba was the man who might lead the successful recovery of Jewish freedom and believed that he was the Mashiach. So Cecil Roth speculated that what these five rabbis were talking about, led by Rabbi Akiva, was on Zman Cherutenu, the festival of freedom, they dreamt of recovering Jewish freedom. And it's a beautiful story. It's brilliant, in fact. Only one thing wrong with it, which is there's no evidence for it whatsoever. Mind you, I suppose that shouldn't stop us. It rarely does. But I actually wanted to ask the straight question. What does the evidence of the Gemara and the rabbinic literature generally tell us they were talking about? And I believe we can discover it, and it is an extraordinary story. And we will see that what was happening at that particular pace at night with those five rabbis in Bnei Brak was a drama, but a completely different drama, not a drama between Jews and the Romans and a possible talk of a, a rebellion. It was a drama between Jew and Jew. And unlike the Bar Kokhba rebellion, which as we know, ended in tragedy, this particular drama had a happy ending. So let us begin at the beginning. And let us remind ourselves of the sequence of events. We have just had the four questions of the child, Manishtana. And the reason is that consistently in the Torah, four times, three in Parshas Bo, one in Parshas Vayeskanan, we speak of children asking questions, and that is the context in which the mitzvah of Sipur Yitziat Mitzrayim occurs. 
Vaya ki yomru aleichem b'neichem v'igadet alavincha b'yamahu. And therefore, from this, the sages learned that the narration of the Haggadah on Pesach is triggered by the questions asked by a child. And of course, the sages devised a principle. Where they got it from, I am not sure, but it's a very fundamental principle. It defines the nature of the Jewish story. Which is Matchil Biginutu Mesayim B'Shevach. You begin with the bad news, you end, end with the good news. And as we know, two early Amorayim, Rav and Shmuel, disagreed as to what the, the answer was. Mitpela of Deavada Zara Hayu Avotenu, according to Rav, and Avodim Hayinu, according to Shmuel. And we have therefore immediately the answer of Shmuel, the immediate answer to Manishtana is Avalimoyinu, and later on we read the passage of Rav. Now I'm not going into any of that. But then we have the Haggadah says two extra things which are not in the Torah. Avalimoyinu appears in the Torah as the answer to the wise son in Vayas Hanan, and the Haggadah adds to that two things that aren't in the biblical text at all. Namely, number one, Afilu Hayinu Kulanu Chachomim Kulanu Nevamim Kulanu Zgenim Kulanu Yodim Ezra Mitzvah Enu Zapper and point two, V'chol Amar Ben Zapper Mitzvah Mitzrayim Harizem Eshubach. Why are those two things added to the answer, according to Shmuel, of the child's questions? The answer first is as follows: Why does it say? Why does it say? What on earth is this about? Why do we say if God hadn't taken our ancestors out 3,300 years ago, we would still be there? And the answer is very simple. Because it is a rule of the narration on Seder night that we have to see the story not as happening then, there to someone else, but as something that is happening here now to me. And that is why the Haggadah has to take the drama from there to now. If God hadn't redeemed our ancestors, we would still be slaves. Therefore, we here now are experiencing liberation. That is why that sentence appears. And then, the second sentence, is telling us another fundamental principle of halakha, which is this. We might have thought, since the Torah mentions telling the going out of Egypt in the context of children, if we had no children, we would thereby be exempt from it, just as if we do not have a four-cornered garment, we would be exempt from the mitzvah tzitzis. In fact, states the Rambam, there is a second source for this mitzvah, Zachor et Yom Remember this day, the, the day you went out of Egypt? And the Rambam tells us that establishes a completely separate mitzvah, which is completely independent of children and their questions. 
And that is why that passage now appears. In other words, all of this is teaching us halachos. And then comes the word ma'aseh. Ma'aseh b'rabi Eliezer b'rabi Now, normally, we just read that as it happened. But actually, ma'aseh is a halachic word. And its significance here is precisely halachic. How so? There is a halachic principle. There are two ways of deciding halach. Way one is to use established halachic principles, meta-halachic principles. So, for instance, we have a law that if there's a machlok is Rav and Shmuel, the halacha is according to Rav, Chutzmi, Hanitlas, except in three specific occasions. Those are the principles for determining the halacha. However, there is a second way of determining the halacha, which is much more powerful than determining the halacha by klalei psika, by, by the general principles. And that is ma'aseh. We have a principle, ma'aseh rav. In other words, in any halachic situation, if the posek is not merely willing to say, this is the halacha, but is willing publicly to act on that halacha, then that is the strongest form of halachic determination. And you can see that here in a very powerful example. In the first source I brought you from the Bavli. Do you have the Yamakoran uh, Can you see Masachet Rosh Hashanah, the first box? Itma. Rav, Rabbi Hanina, Omri, Botla Megillah, Rabbi Yochanan, Rabbi Yeshua, Ben Levi, Omri, Lo Botla Megillah, You will know that there was a scroll called Megillah Ta'anit, which recorded a series of minor festivals that were associated with the Second Temple period. Nowadays, we would call them days on which you don't say Tachem. Yeah, we, we don't do as well as the Hasidim. That's the trouble. We should have more modern Orthodox rabbis, and then on the outside, we would have more days on which we don't say Tachem. And the question was, when the second temple was destroyed, are those festivals still in force or not? The whole purpose of them was to record great things that happened in the Bayashani period. If the bias isn't there, does Megillus Tanis still apply? And we can see the rabbis disagreed. Rabbi, Rabbi Yochanan said, no, the whole thing is now abolished. And Rabbi Yochanan and Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi said, no, it's still in place. And the Gemara then tells us, Ma'aseh, can you see it? Um, can you see the penultimate line? Kedekaimi kaimi, Masiv Rav Kahana. Do you have that? Ma'aseh the Gazru Tanit Bechanika Balut. It actually happened that one year they decreed a Tanis Tzibor, the rain hadn't fallen, whatever it is, in Lud, on Chanika. Now one thing is clear about Hanukkah and all the other minor festivals mentioned in Megillus Tanis, you cannot fast on them. You, you can't establish a fast. So in Lud, the townspeople 
by declaring a fast on Hanukkah, were proclaiming to the world, Hanukkah is null and void, it doesn't exist anymore, because Botla, Megillus, Tanis, the whole scroll and all it represents is now nullified because of Churban Abayis. And what happened? The rabbis didn't issue a psak. They did something much more significant. They did a ma'aser. It says, Vayere Rabbi Eliezer, Barachatz, Rabbi Yeshua, Vizipah, Rabbi Eliezer went and public, went to the public bathhouse on the day that the people of Lud had proclaimed a fast. They traveled to Lud and, and Rabbi Eliezer went to the public bathhouse. Rabbi Yeshua had a haircut. Two things you cannot do on a tiny sibyl. So they were doing a maaseh to show the people of Lud that you cannot abolish Hanukkah, that Megillah's Tanis, at least as far as Hanukkah is concerned, is still in force, and therefore, you're wrong. And they didn't paskin, they did a maaseh. And Amrulahem al they said, your punishment is you're going to have to fast after Hanukkah to do tshuva for the fact that you fasted on Hanukkah. It's great for Weight Watchers, for the rest of us, it's a bit heavy. So we now understand that when the Haggadah tells us, it's not just telling us a nice story. It's teaching us a halacha. That is the meaning of ma'aseh, in rabbinic literature. This isn't a story at all. It is a story that establishes the halacha. Now, what is the source and status of that paragraph in the Haggadah? We know, first of all, this is a teaching of the Mishnaic period. And therefore, it can be of one of three kinds. A, it could be a Mishnah, B, it could be a Tosefta. Those are the two collections of rabbinic sayings from that period. Or, third possibility, it's a Brysa. That is, a teaching from the Mishnahic period that never got included in the Mishnah or the Tosefta. And the short answer is, this is a Brysa. And this is the only place in which it appears. And that is very interesting. Of course, when we search the entire rabbinic literature, we only find one other passage which is similar. And it is so similar that some scholars believe that it is referring to the same event, only some people told the story one way and some people told the story another way. And... uh, Tell me if you think that's plausible. I'm going to read you. We're going to read together in the second source. The only other place where a similar passage occurs. Tell me if you can count the differences between this one and the one in the Haggadah. Can you see it? Second box, Tosefta, Meseches Psachim, Perkyut. Maisa, Barabon Gamliel, Uzikainim, it happened with Rabbi Gamliel and the elders. Shahayu Masubim Bebeit Baitos Ben Zunin Belod 
They were sitting in the house of Baitas Ben Zunin in Lod. And they were studying the laws of Pesach all night at Krotagev until the cock crowed, telling them it was time for Krishna. They, uh, they lifted up the table, they got, uh, got themselves together and they went to the base of Madras. Is this, can you see some differences? What are the differences? Number one, the people are different. Nobody mentioned in the first one, the one in the Haggadah, appears in this one. And the man who appears in this one, Rabban Gamliel, does not appear in the Maisa in Bnei Brak. So the people are different. Number two, the place is different. Because the one in the Haggadah takes place in Bnei Brak, and this story takes place in Lut. Thirdly, what are they talking about? In the Haggadah, they're talking about how They were telling the story of the Exodus. But in Lod, they were asukim behilchos peser kolalala. They weren't telling the story, they were studying the laws. And fourthly, the awareness of time. In Bnei Brak, they forgot the time completely, and a Talmud had to come along and tell them Higiazman. But in Lod, they remembered the time, they saw it was time, they heard it was time, they got up of their own accord and they went to the basin. So, let us begin our journey with one question. One person is missing from the story in the Haggadah. You remember? Somebody is missing. Who is missing? Rabban Gamliel, exactly. Rabban Gamliel was the Nasi. He was the chief rabbi. I have Rachmanism. <laughs> he wasn't there. Why wasn't he there? He should have been the star of the show. He should have been there. He was missing. Why? And the second we see that question, we can suddenly immediately answer the question, when, which year did this particular Seder night take place? The answer is very simple. The Gemara, oh, and, and, and sorry, here it is. Have you got source three? Um, which is the hardest bit of a wedding? I don't know. Is it finding the shidduch or is it doing the seating arrangements? Do you know how many friends you can lose by getting the seating arrangements wrong? So here is a Gemara about seating arrangements. Okay? This is Talmud Bavli, Masechus Brachist, of Memvav, Amud Beis. Amale Reish Galuta Rav The Exilarch said to Rav Sheshis, Av al Gav de Rabbanan Kashishi Atun. Even though you are very distinguished rabbis, the Persians, the Goyim, are better when it comes to manners. Does that make sense to you? There's a certain ring of truth about it. Anyway, 
בזמן שהם שתי מיטות, גדול מעשה בראש ושני למעלה הימנו. Don't forget, in Persia, they used to recline on couches, which we do a semi-reenactment of nowadays. And therefore, if there are two people, the Gadol, the senior, sits at the head, and the second one above him on his left, when there are three, the senior sits in the middle, the second one above him, the third one below him. Uh, the Rav Sheshis brought the objection, if that's the way you're going to have the seating arrangement with the Gadol sitting here and the, the guy, the next most important person sitting on his left, then when the, when the Gadol wants to say something, he's looking at the feet of the person next to him. So it's not a very good way of, uh, of communicating. And the Reish Galuta says, No, don't worry. Actually, it's not in a straight line. It's in a circle. So it's much easier to communicate. Anyway, He says, listen, forget about the Persians. I simply know a Brysa that says, That's the significant distinction. Our principle says when there are only two people, the elder sits at the head and the second one sits below him, not above him. The elder sits in the middle and uh, the second most important one sits there and the third one sits there. And that agrees with the Persian Minhag, if there are three, or more than three. In other words, we have now a simple principle of seating arrangements. And it tells us that, whether according to the Persians, or according to the rabbis, the most important person is sitting where? In the middle. Now please listen to the list of people sitting there and tell me who is the Gadol. Maisa Barabi Eliezer, Barabi Yeshua, Barabi Eliezer ben Azariah, Barabi Akiva, Barabi Tarfa. Who is the Gadol? Who is sitting in the middle? Rabbi Eliezer ben Azariah. He was sitting in the middle. He is the Gadol. Now, how can Rabbi Elazar ben Azariah be the Gadol in that particular company? The elders of that company were sitting on the outside. They are Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Tarfon. Junior to them, sitting on the inside, were Rabbi Yoshua and Rabbi Akiva. In the middle was Rabbi Elazar ben Azariah, the youngest of all the five. So there's something odd about those seating arrangements. And that seating arrangement allows us with precision to identify exactly which year this Seder took place. And it also explains the atmosphere in the Jewish world or the rabbinical world at that particular moment. And here it is. The background is this, as you know. 
We know from Pirkei Avot that Jewish leadership, rabbinic leadership, in the late Second Temple period and the post-destruction period was a dual leadership. They were known as the Zugot. On the one hand, you had the Nasi, and junior to him, you had the Av Beit Din. At this particular time in Jewish history, the Nasi was Rabban Gamliel. The Av Beit Din was Rabbi Yoshua. And they did not always see eye to eye. We know that there was a big machlokas between them. I didn't bring it here in the Mekorot, but let me tell you. It concerned a Bechor, a firstborn animal, that belonged to Rabbi Tzadok the Kohen. We know the law, that a firstborn animal, a Bechor Behemar, belongs to the Kohen. If it is unblemished, it's offered as a Korban, but if it is uh, if it is unblemished, it's offered as a korban. If it's blemished, it belongs to the Kohen. It stays chulin and he can sell it. As a result, Kohanim was suspected of putting a blemish on the animal in order for them to benefit more materially from a uh, behemoth that had a mum. And Rabbi Tzadok has a bechor, which has a Bechor which has a blemish. And he comes to Rabbi Yoshua, the Av based in, and he says to Rabbi Yoshua, tell me, is there a difference in Jewish law between an ordinary Kohen, a Kohen Am Haaretz, an ignorant Kohen, and a Kohen Chaver, a Kohen who is known and has a reputation for keeping law in all its stringency. Do you make a distinction? Do you say only a Kohen Am Ha'aretz is suspected of deliberately making a blemish, whereas a Kohen Chaver is exempt from that suspicion? Or do you penalize all Kohenim equally and suspect them of having imposed the blemish themselves? And Rabbi Yeshua says, Sakalacha, there is a distinction between a Kohen Am Ha'aretz and a Kohen Chaver. And a Kohen Chaver is not suspected of imposing a blemish. And you, Rabbi Tzadik, are a Kohen Chaver. And therefore, since it's you, it's okay. Rabbi Tzadok takes a second opinion. Chevra, when a Rav gives you permission, never ask for a second opinion. But Rabbi Tzadok asks for a second opinion. He came to Rabban Gamliel, the Nasi, and said, Tell me, Rabban Gamliel, do you recognize the distinction, la between a Kohen Amoritz and a Kohen Chaber? And Rabban Gamliel says, There's no such distinction. And Rabbi Tzadok says, But you're number two. Rabbi Yoshua told me there is such a distinction. And Rabban Gamliel then publicly humiliated Rabbi Yoshua by having stand up and become a laughing stock amongst his chaver. That was episode one. Episode two is a famous episode. I brought it here in the Makorot. It's in Bavli Rosh Hashanah, Chafei Omad Aleph. It's the fourth Bamstan. This is about Kiddush HaChodesh. And the principle of to what extent does Kiddush HaChodesh rely on eyewitnesses solely or can you add to that 
an astronomical determination because you can calculate the Rosh Chodesh and you then just rely on Edim as a sort of completion but not as the sole way of determining whether it is Rosh Chodesh or not. Rabbi Gamliel kept astronomical charts on his wall. He was an expert astronomer. And so he required the two witnesses only for the legal technicality of pronouncing the Rosh Chodesh, but he didn't rest everything on the believability of those two witnesses. So the Gemara says, Two witnesses came to the basin and they said, we saw it. Uh, on, the, on, the, uh, on the 29th day, but the next day it wasn't visible. The Gibbon Rablon Gamliel and Rablon Gamliel let their Edus stand because he had already calculated by his astronomical uh, uh, figures that that was indeed Rosh Chodesh. And Omar Rabbi Dusta ben Hakinas Edeshekehen. And Rabbi Dusa said, no, they must be false witnesses. How can you give witness that a woman has given birth when the next day she's still looking pregnant? Rabbi Yeshua said, you're right. In other words, Rabbi Yeshua challenged Rabbi Gamliel's determination of Rosh Chodesh that particular month, which happened to be Tishri. And as we know, Rabbi Gamliel arranged for yet another public humiliation of Rabbi Yehoshua. And he said, He said, I penalize you, you must, I order that you should appear to me with carrying your staff and your money belt on the day which is Yom Kippur according to your calculation but which on my calculation is the 11th of Tishri. And Rabbi Yoshua took advice from many people in the end they said no, don't make a machlokis. So he did indeed go humiliate himself by appearing in public before Rabbi Gamliel on the day Rabbi Yeshua thought was Yom Kippur holding his staff and his money belt. This was a second public humiliation. And then came the most famous one of all, the third humiliation, which was Tfilat Arvit, Marv. Is it Chova or Rashut? Is it an obligation or is it optional? And as you know, Rabbi Yeshua said, Tfilat Arvit Rashut, Rabbi Gamliel said, Tfilat Arvit Chova. And again, somebody, as it were, sneaked on Rabbi Yeshua and told Rabbi Gamliel that Rabbi Yeshua disagreed. And again, Rabbi Gamliel made Rabbi Yeshua stand up in front of the entire congregation. And the rabbis finally rebelled. And they deposed Rabbi Gamliel. And then um, they wanted to know who shall we appoint in his place. And uh, if you look in uh, the fifth, is it the fifth source down? In the middle, in the middle with the line beginning for Ahmad, Amri, 
Ad kama natsari v'nezel. For how long is Rabban Gamliel going to humiliate Rabbi Yoshua? Rosh Hashanah ishtakat tsari bibchoraz b'mazir Rabbi Tzadok tsari. He's already done it twice before about the calculation of Rosh Chodesh Tishri, about the bechorot in the episode of Rabbi Tzadok. Hochinani tsari. Here he has humiliated him again. Tavan Avrei, let us depose him. Three times to humiliate your deputy is not on. Manna Kimla. So who will we appoint as his replacement? Numbeila Rabbi Yoshua. Shall we appoint the number two, Rabbi Yoshua himself? No. Balmasehu. He was Rabban Gamliel's opponent in these arguments. And it would be just too cruel to Rabban Gamliel to appoint his own number two in his place. So let us appoint Rabbi Akiva, who is the most distinguished sage of our times. But then they said, no, Dilma Anishle. You know, um, if you become a Jewish leader, uh, you've got to put up with an awful lot. And maybe Rabbi Gamliel will pray to God to punish Rabbi Akiva. Because he was a Ben Gerim, and he therefore lacked Zuchusavos. Ela Nugmein Rabbi Elazar ben Azaria. Let us appoint Rabbi Elazar ben Azaria to Chacham Ba'Ashivu Asiri LeEzra. He's wise. He's 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 rich, and he has Yichus. He is tenth in line of descent from Ezra himself, etc. etc. Chacham Di Magshalei Mefaraglei. He's wise, therefore he can answer all the criticisms of his view. Who Ashir Dislei Paluchele Beikeza Who Azalu Falach. He has enough money to be a diplomatic representative of the Jewish people. Since he is, has a wonderful yichas, Rabban Gamliel's prayers are null and void against him. They come to Rabbi Elazar ben Azari and say, Young man, we're going to appoint you... Um, Nasi, we're going to make you chief rabbi. Amalei, Ezer ve'imlech ben Shebeisei. The answer is simple. I got to ask my wife. This is a principle I advise all people to do at any conceivable time. Azil ve'imlech bidveisu. He went and took his wife's advice. Amalei Dilma Mabrila. They got rid of your predecessor. Maybe they'll get rid of you. Amala, for that. He had an answer. Listen, enjoy it for a day. Actually, if you're going to be a leader of Jews, a day is about right. <laughs> she said to him, You don't have gray hair. He was only 18 years old. That, he was... 18 years old, Israel Nisa, a miracle happened. And immediately his hair went grey. That is a miracle that happens in every generation. And that's why Rabbi Gamliel says in the Mishnah, which is quoted in the Haggadah, I am like a 70-year-old, not actually a 70-year-old. Or as they said to me in Anglo Jury, when I first became chief rabbi 18 and a half years ago, aren't you a little young for this job? And I said, yes, but believe me in this job, I will age rapidly. (laughs) So, now we know the time this Misa happened in Bnei Brak. It happened 
in the year that they deposed Rabban Gamliel, because after, quite soon thereafter, the people had Rachmanus on Rabban Gamliel. They said to Rabban Gamliel, go and apologize to Rabbi Yoshua. He went, he apologized to Rabbi Yoshua, and they reinstated him as Nasi, so as not to uh, humiliate Rabbi Eloza ben Azariah, they arranged it that Rabbi, there would be a cycle for three weeks. Rabbi Gamliel would be in the Nazi, and the fourth week, Rabbi Eloza ben Azariah, and that was the cycle. But Rabbi Gamliel was replaced quite soon thereafter. So there was only one possible year when this Haggadah, when this Misa happened. That was the year when they deposed Rabbi Gamliel. Now, Hevra. I now want to give you the scene in the Jewish world that particular year. Think about this. Disaster had struck the Jewish people in the Second Temple period. The disaster of what the Gemara euphemistically calls Sinat Chinam, of baseless rivalry between Jews. I want you to see the picture of the Jewish world in around the year 60, middle, middle first century circular time. We know from Josephus the Jewish world was divided into three fundamentally different groups. The Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Essenes. We know from Chazal that the Purushim themselves were internally divided. Rabu Machlokot ben and that, that so deep were the arguments between Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel that it was as if there was a danger that in Chazal's words there was a danger that, that one Torah would be divided into two Torahs so deep were the arguments within the Pharisaic section politically there were arguments between the people who believed in opposing militarily the Romans and people like Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai who was teaching accommodation and even within the zealots themselves there were divided and factionalized leadership so that when Vespasian and then Titus besieged Yerushalayim and HaKodesh, the Jews inside the besieged city were more intent on killing one another than they were killing the enemy outside. And if you really want to be shocked, read Josephus' account, The Jewish War, on how terrible and deep were the divisions in the Jewish people. And because of that, the Second Temple was destroyed, and because of that, one of the worst tragedies ever happened in Jewish history. And what then becomes the primary imperative after this tragedy? One and only one imperative must hold that somehow the Jews who remain must find ways of being at peace with one another. Otherwise, yet more tragedies will happen to them. And look at what has now happened. The rabbis themselves... The leaders of the Jewish people had just come to a point where they were so divided that they deposed their own leader, Rabbi Gamliel. At that particular pace, the entire future of the Jewish people was at the edge of the abyss. If rabbis could not learn from the tragedy of the destruction of the Second Temple, 
if they were so unable to resolve their conflicts that they had to force their own leader to resign, then heaven forbid, an entire history of endless tragedy lay ahead of them. So one imperative ruled that particular Seder night, as it has never ruled before and never ruled since. That Seder night, the one in which Rabbi Elazar ben Azariah is the Gadol, the senior person there, you will see on his number two, sitting next to him, is his Avbeist in Rabbi Yoshua. On the other side is the greatest sage of their time, and Rabbi Akiva, and Rabbi Akiva is sitting on his other side because Rabbi Akiva was the Rav of Bnei Brak, where this was taking place. And on the outer side were the two elder, uh, you know, the two uh, uh, sages, the, the elders, the Zikainim, uh, Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Tarifan. Now, that particular night, when Rabbi Gamliel was missing because he was no longer Nasi, the only year in his life when he was not Nasi, he was missing and there had to be something very fundamental had to happen. That night, there must be no Machwak yet. Now, I want you to imagine, as the Seder is about to begin, there's one very real question, which is, we know, Kol Hamar Mitzrayim, Right? The more you tell the story, the more praiseworthy you are. The question is, what is the shiur? How long does it extend? How long may you tell the story of the going out of Egypt? Do you know the answer? Well, the answer is very simple. Um, we know that... Um, there is a very clear statement on this, and it actually appears in the Haggadah. It says, You shall teach your child, When are you supposed to do it? Maybe you should do it from Rosh Chodesh, when the preparations already began. The, uh, the Torah says, On that day, meaning the day of Pesach itself, Maybe you should already start doing it on, on the on the eve of Pesach when you're actually sacrificing Karmah Bezer, Talmud Lama Bavuzeh, the, therefore the Torah says Bavuzeh, Lo Amarti Yalo B'Sheshim Adzumara Munachim Lufanecha, it has, Bavuzeh means you must be able to point to the Pesach, the Matz, Pesach at the time when the temple stood, Pesach Matzah Mara, so the question, until how long do you tell the story of the going out of Egypt, means is equivalent to the halachic question, until when could the Korban Pesach be eaten? Are you with me? Because this, they are bounded by the same time zones. Now, I want you to read the Gemara, and you are going to see the terrible catastrophe that was about to happen that night. Have you got it? It's the one before the end, Talmud Bavli, Mesechaz, Brochaz, Davdez, Amud Aleph, Hekta Chalavim, Gilu Achilas, Pesach, Lokatani. It doesn't mention eating the Pesachim. 
Veraminhu Kareshma Arvis Vahala Baleli Psachim Vahilas Pesach Mitzvazan Achi Yala Amudajaka. So there's a brisa that says that saying Shema at night and Halal on Pesach night and eating the Karman Pesach is all night until dawn. Omar Rav Yosef Lo Kasha Ha Rabbi Elazar Ben Azaria Ha Rabbi Kiva. One view is the view of Rabbi Elazar Ben Azaria. The other is the view of Rabbi Kiva. Ditanya, as it says in a brisa, Ba'afu Azabasab Alaylo Azeh Rabbi Elazar Ben Azaria Menemo Kan Alaylo Azeh Menemo Lohanon Vavati Beretzrayim Alaylo Azeh Malahalon Ad Chatzos Avkan Ad Chatzos. Rabbi Elazar Ben Azaria says you can eat Korban Pesach until midnight, but not later. Omar Rabbi, Rabbi Akiva, Halokvanema, where is it? Bechipozon, Adshas Chipozon. You can eat the Korban Pesach until the time of the haste. When is the haste? When did the Israelites leave, begin leaving Egypt? When dawn broke and the morning began. So now we have an argument between Rabbi Eliezer ben Azariah and Rabbi Akiva until how long can you eat the Pesach? Rabbi Eliezer Eliezer ben Azariah says until midnight. Rabbi Akiva says until dawn. And it then turns out um, that there is another set of Tanaim who have the same Disagreement, as it says, Shamtiz Bachezabaza, Be'erev, Kavo Hashemesh Moed, says, Chomitzran, Rabbi Eliezer Omer, Be'erev Atazoveach, Kavo Hashemesh Atahochel, Umeid Sesecha Atazareif, you, uh, you offer the carbon pestle in the afternoon, you eat it as night falls, and uh, in the morning, you burn it. Rabbi Yeshua, Be'erev Atazoveach, you Sacrifice it in late afternoon. When the sun sets, you eat it. You can eat it until the moment the Israelites began leaving Egypt, which is until dawn. Now go figure. Until when can you eat the Karban Pesach? Rabbi Elazar ben Azariah and Rabbi Akiva, uh, Rabbi Akiva disagree. Rabbi Eliezer, Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Yeshua disagree. According to Rabbi Elazar ben Azariah and Rabbi Eliezer, you can eat it until midnight and not later. According to Rabbi Yeshua and Rabbi Akiva, you can tell us eat it all night, and therefore you can tell the story all night. This one year when they had to avoid a machlokas, they were about to sit down and have the grandmother of all machlokas. Two of the five rabbis there hold, you can only tell the story until midnight, and the other two hold, you can tell it until dawn. One of them doesn't have an opinion. We are into Machlokes territory. And this is the one night of all nights they have to avoid a Machlokes. How do you avoid a Machlokes between rabbis without relying on miracles. There's a very, very interesting Gemara. Listen to it. Have you got it? The last one. Talmud Bavli, Meseches Rosh Hashanah, Davchav Tez, Amud Beis. Mi Shechara, Beis Amidosh, Iskin, Rabban, Yochan, and Ben Zagai. When Rosh Hashanah falls on Shabbos, do you blow shofar or don't you blow shofar? The answer is, you don't blow shofar, except in one place, the Beis Amikdash. 
So the question is, the first time Rosh Hashanah falls on Shabbos, after the destruction of the Beis Hamikdash, do you blow shofar or not? The Bnei Basera said no. You only blow shofar on Shabbos in the Beis Hamikdash, and we have no Beis Hamikdash anymore. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai said, ah, but we have Yavna, and Yavna is the functional equivalent of the Beis Hamikdash, and therefore in Yavna you can blow shofar on Shabbos. So listen what happens. Tanu Rabbanan, Pam Achas, Hol Rosh Hashanah Once it happened, and this was the first time it happened after Churban by Sheni, that Rosh Hashanah fell on Shabbos. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai said to the Bnei Maseira who served in the temple, let's blow shofar. The temple's destroyed, but Yavna's still here. Amrulei They said, no, we don't agree. It's only in the temple. So let's discuss. Amalahem, Rabbi Yochanan proposed a compromise. Niska va'achakach nidon. Let's blow shofar and then we'll discuss. They said, well, that sounds like a reasonable compromise. So they blew shofar, and then the Bnei Becerra said, right, now let's discuss. The shofar's already been blown. What is there left to discuss? That is how you solve an argument between Chachamim. So what did they do? They said, let's create a fact on the ground, a ma'aseh, because you can't. You can argue about what is the halacha, if all you're doing is discussing halacha, but once a ma'aseh has happened, it's happened. And you can't contradict it once it's happened. So what did they do? The two people who held, Rabbi Yeshua and Rabbi Akiva, that you tell the story all night. What did they do? I'll tell you what they did. They were Mesoprim, Bitsias, Mitzrayim. They talked about the going out of Egypt. They did those things. You remember how many plagues, if there was ten plagues in Egypt, how many was at the sea, and for, you know, all that kind of stuff that you know. And so beautiful was their Torah that the two rabbis who held that you can only tell the story about midnight were so enthralled in the Torah, in the stories, that they completely forgot the time until he gives and nobody wanted to look at the clock because they didn't have clocks in those days. Anyway, until the Talmudim came along and said, guys, it's time to dominate. That fixed the halacha that you can tell the story of Egypt until dawn v'chol amar belezabe b'tziyaz mitzrayim harizim ashubach applies until dawn. And now we can answer all the questions about the difference between the, uh, all the questions about, about the difference between this one and uh, the other story in the Tosefet about Rabban Gamliel. We now know exactly when this conversation took place, the one year in which temporarily Rabbi Elozab and Azariah was Nasi and Rabban Gamliel was deposed. We know why we, that this gathering of sages took place at Bnei Barak because that was the home of Rabbi Akiva, who was the elder statesman in the absence of Rabbi Yoshua, and they were out of, in the absence of Rabbi Gamaliel, out of respect for him, he should have been 
Rabban Gamliel's replacement, so out of respect for him, they went to Bnei Brak, which was his place. We now understand exactly how the seating arrangements were organized. We now know why Rabban Gamliel wasn't there, because that was the year that he was deposed. We now know exactly what they were doing. They were resolving disagreement without creating a new Mahlokas. We know exactly why they kept going. So deliberately to lose track of time and we know now why they were discussing and not like they were in Rabban Gamliel's Seder when they were Asukim if they had done like Rabban Gamliel was doing they were studying Hilchas Pesach they would go slap bang into the Mahlokas that's why the one thing they didn't discuss that night was Hilchas Pesach they simply told the story friends I want to say for me, that was a Seder night that changed history. It showed that you can use Torah as a peaceful methodology of conflict resolution and simply by learning Torah. In that community of scholars, telling the story of Yitziat Mitzrayim, they were able to resolve a halachic dispute without machloket, and I have no doubt that when Rabban, Rabbi Elozeb and Azariah finally woke up to what they'd done to him, he couldn't help smiling. Friends, that really was a rabbinic way to resolve disputes. And therefore, let me leave you with this prayer at this Zman Gu'ulam, that we use Torah as a means of conflict resolution, not as a means of conflict creation and conflict intensification. Let us remember the Gemara that says, Yeah, when father and son or master and disciple sit and discuss Torah, they have different views. But but they never leave off until they become friends and beloved to one another. If we study Torah with real love of Torah, that is what creates peace between scholars. When there is peace between scholars, there is peace within their disciples. And when there is peace in the Jewish world, we will finally pray for and achieve peace in the world at large. Bimhera Amen.